hate you. That's not true. Every night I plan a new way of hurting you. And that is not true either, Brian. We have forged a very strong steel relationship through dialogue and discussion on cinematic immunity. Our friendship is steel. Oh my God, I hope that's not true. Iron and carbon <laughs> were used in the making of this podcast. Jello, jello, and paper mache. <laughs> <laughs> Cinematic immunity. Information overload. I might have to just run out of the room and leave a big Kool Aid man hole in the wall. Cinematic. Cinematic immunity. You tell people not to swear in the mic around. <laughs> that's, a good, that's, that's a good point. Right? You know, I have no problem with you telling people that. That seems like an important safety tip. Just been revoked. Thomas Ethan Harris, during this interview, says that Star Wars is a bad movie. I don't know if you're even going to let me air this episode. He said out loud on the podcast that Star Wars was a bad movie. I think the only thing that hurts here is your pride. I threatened to fight him right then and there. With a fork. He did say that Empire was brilliant. But first he said that New Hope and Jedi were bad films. And I nearly hit him with a chair, which was, would have been unfortunate because he was a really nice, knowledgeable guy. <laughs> and then you would have had to have stood for the rest of the podcast. What kills me is he really knows what he's talking about, which is really upsetting because I think he should like all of the movies that I like. Jeez. <laughs> Unfortunately, perspective doesn't quite work that way. He said out loud on the podcast that Star Wars is a bad film. My heart bleeds. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, back in the jungle, we had a good time sitting down with Thomas Ethan Harris, a legendary film festival consultant and creative consultant nowadays uh, who knows the ins and outs of the film festival circuit who also knows a lot. He runs a seminar over at the American Cinematheque. That's the Egyptian here in Los Angeles, as well as the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. You've heard of uh, script doctors, but he's like a film doctor. He'd come in and tell you from inception of the script all the way through the color process and post, he knows all this stuff. It's very impressive. Here's a guy who's watched over 30,000 short films professionally and probably has really good insight because he's watched so many bad films he knows what not to do yeah but he also knows what to do as well a lot of people put a lot of trust in him and rightfully so he's a great creative talent he's got a lot of professional experience in the film festival circuit to know how to relate that information to uh regular folks like you and i Close your eyes for a minute and imagine having to watch 33,000 terrible shorts intermixed with 2,000 good ones. Oh, oh, my, oh, God, it hurts even thinking about it. So if you're a filmmaker who's just getting off the ground and uh, maybe you're just starting to submit your films to different film festivals all around the country, take a listen to this podcast with Thomas Ethan Harris to talk about what film festival programmers and directors are looking for and what you can do to make sure that as you start submitting that your film gets as much traction as it can by keeping in touch with the film festival publicity teams and the directors, making sure that they know who you are, what your film is about, and that you're turning in all your stuff on spec and way before the deadline. We talked after the show for a long time, and he said to me, I don't like Memento. I don't like V for Vendetta. But that new J.J. Abrams Star Trek film, that was great. I looked around for a weapon. Lewis had to hold me back. <laughs> <laughs> 
Lewis was like, don't hurt him. He's a guest. He didn't know. Don't hurt him. He didn't know the lion's den that he walked into, Mr. Thomas Harris, when he walked in here. He said out loud that Star Wars was a bad film. (laughs) Buckle in, kids. If you like any of the movies that I like, and I think by now, if you've listened, you're getting a vibe for what I dig, your heart's going to hurt during this episode. But it's all right. Get through it. It was still a very good, informative episode. It brings a lot of knowledge. Big fun. He likes J.J. Abrams' new Star Trek films. <laughs> Thomas Ethan Harris, everybody. Thank you so much. Enjoy. It's insane. Right. Cinematech is a growing institution that's been around a long time. Yeah, like 45 years now yeah. at this point. And it's being funded independently so that it can keep going. Well, it's funded in all sorts of ways. That's the only way to keep a nonprofit rolling, I think. You know, so it's anybody from, you know, our patrons that come to see movies or hear guest speakers and so forth to uh to uh some of Hollywood, corporate America is in there, grants. It's a little bit of everything because we own and operate both the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood and the um, Aero Theater in Santa Monica, California. So, but it is connected to you know like the Cinémathèque Française. There's Cinémathèques all over the world. We just happen to be the American Cinémathèque, and we're here in Los Angeles. Smack dab right here in Hollywood yeah. and Santa Monica. <laughs> both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're sitting down with Thomas Ethan Harris, who I have come to know as a coordinator and programmer for some of the world's most important film festivals uh, over the last 15 years, but has come around to host a bunch of seminars at this place we were just talking about, American Cinematheque. So thanks for joining us, Thomas. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. It's great. Right, right on. Yay. <laughs> I guess let's start. Let's start and go ahead and get the obvious out of the way. The world of film festivals, something mm-hmm. uh, you'd say you have your master's degree in uh, when it comes to knowing how they are owned and operated? Yeah, I kind of got thrown into uh, the world of film festivals in Gulp, the 90s. So it goes back a long time. And I had graduated from USC film school. Um, I didn't have a job. And somebody said, would you like to get involved in a film festival? And I didn't really know what that was. I, it was the 90s. They weren't as, there weren't as many of them back then. And I said, sure. And they're like, well, we're creating a new one for Los Angeles. And it was like, oh, an independent film festival? And that was kind of exciting to me. And I became the uh, director of programming and the co-creator of what today is called Los Angeles Film Festival. What was it back then? Uh, it was called Los Angeles Independent Film Festival. And then after about five years, we got the independent word, became a little bit more of a negative, believe it or not. It is. Um, and we wanted to become independent films, helping emerging filmmakers that are domestically born and raised and making movies here, as well as um, international filmmakers for that kind of exposure. So I did Los Angeles Film Festival, and then I be, I did that for... Um, for seven years of my life, and it was great. Um, it was a lot of viewing. I, I think I quote, I've watched about 17,000 first or second features and about 35,000 shorts at this point in my career. How I wear did, glasses, by the way. <laughs> How does your brain not melt? It, it does melt. I mean, especially when filmmakers submit their films really close to the final deadline, because that's when we're really the workhorses. Um, but Pauline Kael, the great American critic, you know, she said 
and I kind of followed this philosophy that you always go into watching a new film, at least at the head of it, with your eyes open, excited about this could be the best film ever. And you do remember the great films. You do. They, they immediately will come back to you when you're finalizing your content for the year. Yeah. And after LA Film Festival, I went on to be director of programming of the Palm Springs International Short Film Festival, which is the United States' number one short film festival. And that was a great joy. That's why I can rack up so many viewings of so many short films so quickly, because I was watching about four to 5,000 shorts a year when I did that. And then I developed a series of other festivals for the United States and, and one in Monaco, a festival of emerging talent. My thing in life is about emerging talent. I like being there when people get started, when there's all the possibilities in the world present, you know, all the ideas, everything's possible. And then often, not often, but periodically, if you're Bennett Miller of Capote or Derek C. in France from Blue Valentine, um, you go off and you have your career after you've waged your time in my little racket. So <laughs> I'm stuck on 35,000 shorts. <laughs> if I've seen two dozen shorts in my life, I'd be surprised. <laughs> it's fun. I mean, it's really, you know, if you love new talent, if you love the idea that you're going to discover somebody new, it's, it's a joy. I mean, I'll admit, I'm still that way today. I'm not necessarily, as of 2010, I decided I no longer wanted to program film festivals because I'd spent 17 years programming events. And it's changed a little bit. You know, there's a lot more access for um, distributed films, films that have distributors. And my thing was not about playing success stories from Sundance or South by Southwest or whatever. My thing was, who hasn't had any exposure and how can I help them? And as the festival got older, it also got more conservative. So more and more films came in with already established festival pedigrees. And I kind of decided, hmm, this industry's changed a little bit. I want to go figure out another way to assist um, emerging talent. Break down the percentage for me for a second. Or out of that 35,000, it's a mind-boggling number, <laughs> are half of them... Watchable. Completely inappropriate for that <laughs> film festival, you know. Like, are five percent brilliant? Or you know, like, give me the, give me that breakdown. Ten percent are fantastic, watchable. Anybody can I come think, in. Yeah. They could win something. Ten percent, yeah. you think? Ten percent wow. are are really great, and that's because the filmmakers have decided somewhere along the line that they're going to do something unique. And this is one of the major falling downs, I think, of the American independent scene in the United States, that filmmakers now are seeking success, fame, and so forth, and they forgot their personal voice. And when it comes to a Thomas Ethan Harris situation, a personal voice is, number one, that you have something very original to say, if you wish, a thesis in your short or your feature, you know, something not love is good. That's not a thesis. That's whatever. That's ridiculous. That doesn't mean anything. I already know that. I don't want to watch it. So you give me your own viewpoint, and then hopefully you have the ability to visually interpret your subject, your characters, and so forth, to give it a style, a look. Because cinema... In my opinion, we have to stop focusing on cinema as a storytelling device. That is the world 
to great measure of literature. That is the world of theater to some extent. When cinema comes down to just being performance and dialogue, it's not going to get in festivals. You got to reach beyond that. So what I'd like people to start thinking is that when we make cinema, we're making audiovisual work. We're utilizing two different ends that no other art form has the ability to get near. And those are the types of films that rank in that 10%, where you've got, if you wish, we can use a French New Wave term, the auteur. You know, we have somebody who's a thinker, both visually and in terms of what they want to say. I feel like there aren't that many auteurs out there anymore because it takes so many people to get a movie made. It's very hard to have that, uh, that one-driven auteur theory as it was originally yeah. conceived. I totally agree with that. And that's why... What I've morphed myself into is, is you know, yes, a former festival program worth a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge about cinema and so forth. But I, I became a film consultant outright to help people to retain that original voice. Because it's my belief that's how you get into festivals. You're not going to get in festivals by making a romantic comedy. You're not. It's not going to happen. I've been there in the trenches. The distributors with god-awful Jennifer Aniston in their movies and other famous people, they're going to get the romantic comedy slots and you're going to be on the side. You have to learn how to interpret genre, how to interpret unique characters, how to get your own ideas up there. And if I can sit with a filmmaker and with all of the blessed experiences I've had working with so many cool, diverse people, some of which are incredibly famous today, if I can take all that energy and give that to one more person who might be an auteur, awesome. So maybe you can run us through the process. Once you've been accepted into a festival, I know this is an area of expertise. <laughs> I already know I've heard you tell this answer, so I apologize for, for having you run through it again. But I think it's a very important step uh, for young filmmakers out there. Okay, so you spent all this time and energy getting the film made. Okay, you spent all this time and energy getting the post-production done. Okay, you've made it through that and you haven't sold your film to a distributor. Nobody's, you know, screwed you out of a good deal and it's still fresh to everyone. Some big film festival, say Sundance, uh, Palm Springs International, whoever, accepts your film. What do you do right away? How do you go about the process? Once you're accepted. Once you're accepted. Okay, the first thing you do is you you follow very clearly what the festival's publicist has sent you. Like if they're asking for preview DVDs or they want your trailer or they want a link to your trailer or your website information, whatever it might be, they will ask for this and they will give you a deadline. You do not wait till that deadline comes. You get it to them immediately because the way it works at festivals, especially for what we call long lead press, that there's not a ton of long lead press any longer, but that would be like Filmmaker Magazine or, you know, or Movie Maker Magazine. I just did an interview with them the other day. Um, that you want to get that information to the festival's publicist because they will just begin sending it out. They don't wait till that deadline comes. That's number one. The second thing that you do is you get to know the festival programmers as best you can because if they like you, if we like you, and you have a great a great deal of humanity and you're patient and you're not ego-based, you'll be amazed how many more doors will actually end up opening for Especially you. Especially when you make those deadlines way ahead of time. Yeah, it's just like awesome. Do you realize that the average filmmaker, feature or short, they turn in publicity materials, stills, about 
two weeks late. That's the average person. And then they come to your event and they're livid because so-and-so's film was covered in the LA Weekly and the LA Times and all this. Well, I sent and- mine last night. <laughs> <laughs> See? So, you know, getting everything in as fast as humanly possible is, is you know, absolutely important. And it's usually not that much stuff. I mean, other types of promotional materials and stuff, that can come out of you a bit later. Mm-hmm. I always advocate, I do advocate it's very old school of me, and I do have some old school sites, but I found that um, festivals, uh, the postcards that they ask you to make, as long as you understand that your postcard becomes um, a fantastic um, a fantastic element to connecting a person you're handing it to, to your film. If, if you just hand out business cards when you're meeting somebody that matters to you, they're going to get you all mixed up. I used to go to Toronto International Film Festival. I'd come home with like 150 business cards, and I couldn't remember who was who. So I really encourage people, the postcard, but also on the back of the postcard, you have to make it user-friendly. It should have everything, all the contact information to you, whether you Twitter, your Facebook, your email, no phones, because they can get in the hands of the public, so don't put your cell phone on there. And then synopsis um, of what your film is about so that everybody can remember who you, you know, what your film was and yeah. can follow up with you. So those types of materials, that can kind of wait till the festival begins. But um, getting to know the festival's publicist, I always tell everybody, like when you go to Sundance, I had a feature that I helped to produce at Sundance a couple of years ago. And the first stop we made when we arrived in town for the film festival was actually to the publicist's office, just to put a face with all the name, with all the materials we'd send. Because if you show the festival's publicist that you're actually a reasonable person who's kind and is well-spoken and so forth, they will make magic happen for you. Because you never know when a journalist or somebody wants to connect with some filmmakers. It comes out of the clear blue. So I tell both short and and feature-length filmmakers, get to know the festival's publicists and then get to know the the programmers because sometimes during a film event, the programmer's the one who's alerted. We need a filmmaker. Who do you know who will turn out for? This is like Sun, This is what Sundance is like. Who do you know who will be ready to go with an interview at 4 a.m. in the morning? So you kind of get a vibe as to who's the partier, who's the filmmaker, who's actually going to really show up to do that kind of stuff. So I think those are some primary, you know, goals uh, for you. Absolutely. And for everyone else, too, who's tuning in trying to figure out, well, okay, what's the next step? So uh, maybe we'll just walk them through it just a little bit. So they've the the film screens, they've met some people, they've mm-hmm. been passing out the postcards. You know, they've sent in all their publicity material online, their synopses, their bios, their production stills. Uh, what am I leaving out? Uh, going to other people's screenings. Oh, I know that go. sounds insane, yeah, right. but it's not about you. <laughs> You, you know, check the ego at the door. Because if you go to other people's screenings, you have a way to go up to the producer at that event with a certain degree of self-confidence to say, yeah, my film screened the day before yesterday and screening again soon. Because the idea in the wake of the lack of distributors that now exist, this is for feature filmmakers, there really aren't any distributors left. There's... There, there really aren't. We're, we're back to where we were in the early, early 90s where we were inventing distribution. That's what's happening again with streaming potential and so forth. So the one thing, the only thing, even a festival like Sundance can guarantee a filmmaker now, it isn't distribution anymore. It is the idea of connecting you with somebody who might very well help you to make the next film. And maybe for that one, you actually get a paycheck. That happens all the time at festivals. But you're not going to meet those people by just going to 
I noticed the word just, just going to parties. You've got to go to other people's screenings so that you have something in common with the person. You can go up and say, I loved your film. I liked it for this reason and this reason so that they can kind of gauge that you're not just another player. I found that uh, if you go there and you're uh, you're attending for the week-long run or however the run of the festival is, the easiest way in so that it's not a cold conversation is be like, well, did you see this film and whatever film that was? You know, just name off a couple of films that you really like and you instantly can talk to just about anybody anywhere because they're all, everybody's there to do the same thing. Exactly. It's, it's, so important. And and that type of discourse is not going to happen at a party, especially when people are drinking. I'm not saying don't go to parties. I'm saying remember the other half. Networking, if that's your thing, the best way to network is to appreciate somebody else's contribution to cinema. They'll know you're the real deal. And it's amazing how many filmmakers through the years at LA Film Festival would meet at our event and suddenly they'd come back in a couple of years with another feature that they actually got together. And that's the only sure thing that happens at festivals today. I I wish the distribution channels were different. Someday it'll be okay again. Remember, when John Cassavetes was making his independent films in the 60s and 70s, there were no distributors. There was no chance of having your film put on a theatrical screen. Today, it's not anywhere near where we were in the 90s and in the early 2000s. That's all gone. It's okay. We'll reinvent it. But for now, take advantage of festivals in order to launch your career. And that's why the other thing to have when you go to a Sundance or South By or Tribeca Film Festival is you absolutely have to have the next project. Whether it is a completed script, you don't need it under your arm, that's a bunch of baloney. You just need to know what your next project is. You don't want to represent yourself by having 5,000 different projects. You want to be very solid about your convictions because that's very attractive to people that want to work with somebody talented. And that could also go for documentary knowing your next subject matter and what yeah. you'd like to explore the idea being that you could walk into any meeting and say what else and that person could say what else you got you need to be able to rattle off a few different ideas to intrigue their interest to see that you're not just a one-trick pony that they can rely on you for material because at film festivals that's where it all starts executive producers producers uh i feel like anybody most uh, you're either on one side of the fence or the other you either have material or you're looking for material that's exactly right. And since, you know, distribution world's complex now, it doesn't it's hard to function in. The, you know, most people that go to festivals, what they're really looking for is somebody who's talented and's got something they can work on because they can't take your film and do anything with it. They can appreciate it, but they can't help you in any other way. And here's the deal. You go to Sundance, you don't have the next script. Nobody's waiting around 6 months for you to write something or a year. You'll and I've experienced this firsthand. That's how I learned with some of my clients who we had a film a short like at Sundance and then we'd go back to these amazing people that were so hot on us like eight months later with a completed script and they were full up. They didn't have a door for us to walk through anymore or they were focused on the next thing. So it's a very hard balance. This is where it's tough because when you make a motion picture, it takes everything out of you and I've had a lot of my my personal clients say, but Thomas, we just finished the film. I haven't had any time to write and I'm like, I know. I get it. But, you know, if you can start taking from this podcast this idea that, you know, you got to be doing this as well, you're going to have to figure it in. And maybe that'll help you to figure out when you're actually going to shoot a short or whatever it might be. So let's talk about the the distribution as it is these days. Mm -hmm. They have changed a lot of the rules and a lot of technology has allowed for a lot more opportunity 
to distribute in a in a fashion that five years ago wasn't available. Mm-hmm. How is that changing the business of film festivals? How is that changing it for directors, um, filmmakers? Well, I think that, you know, the first thing is, and this makes, I think, all of us really solid. It's stuff that I know that maybe you don't know. And that would be that whenever you hear of these deals, whether we're talking 1999, I was the film consultant on the Blair Witch Project. That's how far back I was trying to polish film work. And no, I did not get a salary for that. But I have something even better. I have one of the original Blair Witch you know, the witch's stick figures, which is kind of awesome. There's only six (laughs) in the whole world, and it's very valuable. I've been offered a lot of dough for that thing. But the point is, is that um, whether it's Blair Witch in 99 or whether it's something that happens to somebody's film at Sundance in 2014, um, the deal you read about and hear about in the trades is just a number. That is not the deal. When you hear somebody's film sold for a million dollars, that does not mean the filmmaker gets a check for a million dollars. You need to read the rest of the contract, which the trades are not going to print, because what you're about to discover is there's no way you're ever getting that million dollars. That million dollars is setting a perception that something has value. You don't want to say what the real terms are, because there isn't any money. But if you can work off of that perception, you might very well find yourself, oh, I sold my film for a million dollars, and somebody will believe in you enough to get involved with you on the next film. So that's one thing about the world of distribution. It's not what you read in the trades. In fact, my publicist used to tell me that about 70% of what you read in the trades is made up. It's made up to allow people to believe in something to actually get involved. Because if you really knew the real terms, nobody's going to get involved. Because all the money's, you know, it's a very slippery thing. And if you follow most trade stories, you'll see that they don't necessarily pan out to where they originally were pitched. So the second thing is, getting back to the, you know, the idea of distribution, um, I think that, and, and how festivals without that component, what have they become? Well, they become, and this is where I believe, in all honesty, that Sundance really understands the world in which we live in. Remember, Sundance is a festival that comes out of a period where there were no distributors, and now we don't have as many. So what Sundance has done is they've morphed their film festival into emerging talent. And that's why at Sundance you see, you know, under uh, John Cooper's uh, leadership, the idea that uh, they have the next section for independent feature films, which are films budgeted, I believe it's under a half a million dollars. It, um, I changed it recently. It's somewhere around there. So, in other words, nobody's really going to buy those films. They're usually without stars and things like that that distributors want. But at the same time, there's a lot of attention played to those. So, you're seeing more and more festivals. And I will have to say that part of this is following South by Southwest's lead, which they were always kind of down in the trenches with filmmakers. And this is where Sundance has tipped its hat. I wish more film festivals that had access to tremendous press entities would follow the same lead and not worry about playing, you know, a ton of distributed films who are coming out in a couple of months. I wish they would start to understand that the opportunity of an audience to see something they may never get to see again is a truest blessing. So I think that's the primary impact on festivals. A festival that's honest with itself, it's going to have a lot of the business community there. They're going to do their best to get all those folks in. But at the same time, they should be backing these artists who just need to have you know, some oomph put behind them so they can find their ways. 
What then would be the festivals that do support some of that South by Southwest down in the trenches field? I, I know there's sure. got to be a bunch of them. Uh, there's not as many as you think, uh, because what's happened in the contemporary festival world is um, because there's so many festivals today, um, they've gotten more conservative. And when a festival gets more conservative, what they start doing is they play more and more of the films that may very well assure them that audiences will turn out. So they'll have more films from the distributors, more films with stars, maybe not the best content. But the festivals that kind of follow um, with this lead set by Sundance and South by Southwest, in particular, are what I refer to as community film festivals. They may not be the strongest on... um, international press or huge domestic press, but they have good localized press and they have a very small degree of of actual industry professionals at their event. But they are festivals that are watched very closely from afar. And these would be festivals in particular like Sedona Film Festival in Arizona. It's easily, the I think it's the best film festival of the southwest part of the United States, bar Los Angeles in there. Cinequest up in San Jose in California again. Something like Nantucket in Massachusetts. Um, Nantucket is a writer's film festival. It's all, it's not positioned just as the auteur director. It's sure. about the writer. And they hook you up at um, at Nantucket with a tremendous degree of um, terrific uh, mentors, uh, professionals that they bring up from New York City and so forth. I had a feature there years ago and they um, hooked us up with Harold Pintner. He became somebody we could call and the next feature got made because of calls he put in. I believe that, by the way, I believe that mentorship thing of hooking up an emerging filmmaker with somebody who can open doors to him, I think that's the next step that you're going to actually see festivals go down. Now, Sundance is already doing this with their amazing labs. Tribeca has amazing labs as well. I've seen things like that along the way. It's it's all, it's what we can offer, and there's a lot of industry professionals who are more than willing, if they like the filmmaker and they like the idea of the film, to allow that to happen so somebody's film can find um, its way. And then just a couple of other festivals that I'm, you know, really big on for the reasons of, you know, emerging talent would be um, St. Louis International National. It's a fantastic Midwestern uh, film festival. And um, something like um, Hamptons International Film Festival in upstate New York, or in the Hamptons. All all good artistically relevant film festivals that uh, you might Mm -hmm. recommend submitting to. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe we can set the Wayback Machine, as it were. There are these three filmmakers from UCF that are uh, putting together this film, The Blair Witch Project. Mm Mm-hmm. Keeping in mind where the status of independent filmmaking was circa day 98, 99? 99. Where was the industry at that point for, you know, because Blair Witch, they did it first. Like, they're the ones that did it first for our, what I would say, our generation. Well, actually, before you tell your story, which is you're going to take it to the next step, let me tell okay. one funny story about early in the process— at the Enzion was the Orlando Film Festival yes, or whatever was. it was called. It's called yeah. the Florida Film Festival. Florida Film yeah. Festival, thank you. And Dave Edwards and I, we had we had just gotten off two films, so we printed up business cards and we were gonna network ourselves. We were giving cards to the waiters. We were giving cards to everybody. Guys selling popcorn, my name is Brian Hart, I'm a filmmaker. We did the networking thing to the hilt. They showed Blair Witch at this, but it wasn't Blair Witch yet. It was it was one of the earlier versions of it. Um, and I remember seeing the theatrical print later. I was like, oh, they've solved a lot of its problems. 
the version that we saw, we're talking with the, the it, it wasn't that well received in the room. And we're talking with the, I think it was three producers that were there for it. And one of them was the director, one was the writer, whatever it was. And we had a very frank conversation with them at the bar hanging out. And I had said, we were totally being honest with them. I was like, I really, I like the end, I like the last five seconds, but here's my problems with the first hour and a half. Because it did drag a little. They did, they solved a lot of its pacing problems and whatever their edits were when it went onto Lionsgate or whatever it was. Um, but the conversation did not go that well because <laughs> it was like, I was a little too, I was all of 22 years old, whatever uh-huh. it was. And they were also young guys. So, you know, I was talking to other 22 year olds. So we were, we were rapping and trying to be honest about it. And, uh, they were like, yeah, all right. And we never spoke again. We, you know, we exchanged information, but we never spoke again because we didn't – we gave a bad – it was a bad conversation. <laughs> At that point, had they brought Having in the creative no services of that they were about to explode. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I mean, going back to that idea of original intent when you make a feature. Okay, so here's a group of filmmakers that make a film with multiple original intents. The first thing is they made a horror film. Okay, in 99, horror was a dead genre. It is not – what you made that all and it wasn't be- even a conventional horror film it was a well, bizarre like, spiritual number, horror that's film that's number 2 right it becomes the first film in the history of cinema where the object of horror is not on screen it's never seen it's yeah. in your mind it's created through editing it's created through pacing it's created through performance so that separates it from frankenstein and dracula and every other type of horror film and then thirdly the producers of the film, in particular Eduardo Sanchez, who I did another film for recently, um, came up with this idea, this understanding that the horror inside the minds of the spectator could be intensified based on understanding how audiences respond to horror in cinema, which means when you get scared, one of the things you could scream, you know, you could you could turn your head. A lot of people close their eyes when they're scared. Well, when you watch the construction of the Blair Witch Project, a lot of times we're racing cameras into the darkness, so the screen itself becomes like your eyes are closed, so your brain is starting this process of thinking like you can't see where you're going. It is like your eyes are closed, but your eyes actually open wider because you're looking for something on that black screen, which makes you much more vulnerable. And that's why the people that had the shock, had the thrills with Blair Witch, you know, had such an intense experience with that. Now, Blair is a film before horror genre becomes hot, and that would happen in roughly, you know, the era, frankly, in the era of Osama bin Laden and, sorry, George Bush. I mean, you know, people that, the very conflicting figures, that's what, Great horror always comes out of periods of um, tremendous upheaval. The other great period of horror made in the United States, for example, would come in the 30s with the rise of Hitler and Mussolini. So we have this other, um, we had this other generation. But in 99, there was none of that. And here's the even darker thing. Um, There was no place to play Blair Witch in the festivals because festivals, A, deemed horror genre, and we don't play genre. We play auteur, you know. And you might say, well, but Blair Witch did its world premiere at Sundance. That is true, it did. It got into the midnight movie section. The programmers at Sundance were very conflicted about playing the film in dramatic competition. They liked it, but they didn't feel that was the right place. So here we are with the most talked about film, you know, that's going to go to Sundance. And bingo, it ends up 
on what is technically a sidebar, where I remember that year at Sundance, uh, the film was screening, Blair Witch screened opposite in its section, something about um, aliens arriving in Salt Lake City. That was one of the movies. It, it was just like this locally made kind of crazy thing. But, you know, the distributors, nobody was willing to venture in and look at films in the midnight movie section at the height of independent distribution for a new movie. They were all glued over here on, you know, dramatic competition and stuff. And there was no way to get them back. So part of what allowed them to find us, find Blair Witch would be the idea of all of the work that went behind Blair Witch in advance of the film ever being seen. So in this way, Blair Witch becomes another form of seminal film. And that is it used social media That's to begin the process yep. of helping people to get get excited about the arrival But it had two things movie. working against it. It had no soundtrack, which is what usually helps a horror film In to 99. tell the audience, oh, you, of know, yeah. you know, this is what your emotion is supposed to be. And it, it it didn't have that, and also it was the sh- it was the shaky cam, which is one of the reasons well, we beat them up. That the, the shaky also, cam looked terrible from like the film school perspective. It was like, why are you running around with this thing? It's like place a shot properly. You know, we were still in that kind of well. It was mindset. also remythed, right? Because we're talking about it like it was a horror film, but what happened through John Pearson's television show and so forth is Blair Witch. Actually, everybody thought it was a documentary. Right. Yeah, so was, that mythical base was built and that spread like lightning. The PR was brilliant. To me, that was number four. You named off the three points of why Blair Witch did what it did. Mm -hmm. That was, Mm -hmm. you know, that was the fourth one Mm -hmm. right there. But it it feeds back to that kind of exciting idea of we haven't seen the potential of cinema yet. This is in the hands of filmmakers. This is what will start your career. Not dumbing yourself down to telling stories that we've already seen a million times before about how your girlfriend left you and whatever. Nobody wants to see that. Now, if you want to reinterpret relationship drama or something, that's a whole other story. But most filmmakers, that's what I've realized by watching all these films and the evolution of independent cinema. And this is a very sharp comment. It's based solely on my personal experience is there is a decline in the interest in making a motion picture that has a visual consistency and actually something to say. There is a decline. There is not interest in it. It's a change in the direction of where media is headed. And in to some measure, I personally believe that what we'll see in the next few years, we're seeing it already, just nobody wants to talk about it because it's kind of scary, which is we're going to see the decline of film festivals because we have new generations that aren't particularly interested in going to film festivals. You know, when you go to Sundance today, most people are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. When I went to Sundance in the 90s, everybody was in their 20s. Where are the 20-year-olds today? They enjoy YouTube. They enjoy finding content on the web, that they, it's like a festival in your office or in your home space every day of the week. So we have a, we have a change, but I'm still pushing everybody to be as bold as those Blair Witch filmmakers were. And just to wrap up the Blair Witch conversation, I, you got to give those guys credit for starting it and then snowballing it into what they did. But you talk about evolution. I think that if Blair Witch was that, that first step, I know nobody else seemed to like the movie but me, but I thought Cloverfield was the professional version mm-hmm. of that. Sure. That it took the elements of it and it had to build that sort mm-hmm. of PR mystique around it. There was a great internet campaign, but it sort of, it took the st- the shaky cam 
whatever we're calling that, that shaky cam vibe, the, the th- first Cinema person. Verte. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it took that to the, what I thought was the professional level. And yeah. I, I love Cloverfield. Thank you to cinematographer Michael Bonvillain of uh, Cloverfield for making this movie possible. <laughs> they did, uh, they did that movie with uh, Vipers um, and uh, HVXs. They, anything that had dialogue. Cause they, the whole idea behind Cloverfield was that the guy was actually just like, uh, just, just, he was like, filming at the party and yeah. then continues on the adventure with So them. anything, that uh, when, once the monster that they at one point people were l- wondering if that was Godzilla speaking back to the PR com- campaign they did a good Voltron, job Voltron it was going to be yeah. the, a whole bunch of different things it's a lion was what somebody had heard but it was apparently it was he was saying it's alive and you know all this you know the internet fuels all these things yeah, so, well, I mean, also keep in mind, I mean, you know, Blair Witch doesn't really have a script to it either. These were semi-improvs. They just did an outline. They did. They leave little messages inside the right. tent telling the actors what they were supposed to do, you know, and that's what got filmed. So it's entirely different embrace of how acting is done. And it was in, in a bizarre kind of way. It's much more like how European cinema functions, whether we're talking Fellini or we're talking today, because most European or a lot of European films, there's no script. They don't begin with script. They begin with a scenario and you work together with a team of people, your actors, your camera operator, your sound designer, you know, and so forth to actually make a movie. One of the reasons why I think European cinema just happens to feel a little bit more alive right now than American cinema. There's lots of reasons why our national cinema, I believe, is flattened out. I think it's getting better. I think we have some very talented people, but it's nowhere near how exciting American cinema was between the years of, say, 1966 to 1978, which is, in my eyes, the greatest single period of American cinema. That's the period of the Godfathers and the Conversations and Taxi Driver and so forth, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. They all came out. Star Wars, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Boom is hanging in the shot in some of those scenes, unless you format your matting correctly. So I have a little problem with that. But well, what you know, what better story is there of a little independent film that barely got past the studio that balloons into a ten billion dollar empire? No, that's true. Every film student has got has got to study uh, Star Wars as a as a building block. Yeah, I suppose. But it's hard to hard to shoot down your time period for The Godfather and the rest of it. That's I, oh, I agree completely. That's fast. So you have a concept about visually comprehensive filmmaking. I do. I I have a seminar series in Los Angeles um, that I've been doing for about six years uh, with the American Cinematheque, as we were talking earlier, and the Cinematheque. Um, I've been doing stuff with the Cinematheque. I used to have a screening series there um, in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, and, you know, they kind of allowed me to have a seminar series my way. And at first it was just going to be like every other major city's seminar series, which would be panel discussions about, you know, with industry professionals mm-hmm. about whatever topic came up, distribution, publicity, marketing, whatever. And we did those, and those were great. We did web entertainment. We got terrific audiences all the times we did web entertainment. And I loved all of that. That was really great. But the weirdest thing, the only real reason I want to do a seminar series because I really feel like there is a lack of talking about creative, the creative end of filmmaking. There's a lot of dream making going on. You know, just because you sit in a room and pay a lot of money to see a bunch of famous producers tell stories about how they got rich and famous, that is not going to help you make your movie. So I decided what we need to do is we need to have an end of our seminar series that allows us to focus on film construction, what makes for a good film. And it's really kind of 
wonderful because when I was in film school, you know, you'd had to read in a textbook about how great a shot was or how great a sequence was directed, right? And kind of try to imagine it and then run out the door and get the VHS tape or the DVD or whatever, <laughs> you know, and then watch it. And then you couldn't remember what was in the book. So it was a really hard thing. Well, at the Cinematheque during, when I do my visual communication seminars, what we're doing is we're actually putting the scene up on a big screen so that the audience can actually see it. And then we begin the process of talking about how how it's functioning. And we do topics. I just finished doing what we call, um, what I call In the Cut, which is our editing seminar. I don't teach master shot, shot, reverse shot, because I figure everybody knows that. I teach people other things that they've never explored, which is what is suturing in editing? How does suturing function? How does it work within the realm of how an audience perceives a film? Um, so I do editing, sound design, whatever topic we want to focus on. The next one coming up is going to be on direction, and then I want to do one on lighting. But it's a fantastic way to inspire filmmakers, and that's the greatest single compliment I ever have had in my career is when somebody comes up to me and says, my God, Thomas, I I was in film school for four years. I learned more tonight than I can ever have imagined learning. And I actually think I can go finish my script or I can, you know, shoot my movie. You know, I, I got lot, new ideas. A lot of young filmmakers truly just want different perspectives, which is something we try to bring to this show is uh, getting different perspectives on, you know, how you did this or how you would go about that or talk about this problem of today or, you know, so yeah. I think we, um, I think a lot of young folks just want different perspectives. And if you could provide them with a, a new um perspective of so why this is this is working or not working um you have other notes in there as to i'm sure without a doubt about other topics that you tend to cover or as you have listed uh production design uh color uh sound design orchestration Mm -hmm. any of that any of that fun uh goodness is once again yeah because i i have to tell you having watched all those films all those years for the festivals what i noticed over the years is this era and i'm not knocking the filmmakers of this era i'm just saying that in this era The focus of the filmmaker, despite having magnificent cameras, the focus is getting dialogue and and, and shooting it on screen. That's it. They're not thinking about color design, sound design, music. They're not thinking about any of the other elements that really brings up cinema. And if you're going to make a film that's basically about performance and dialogue, you know, you're not going to be playing festivals. It's going to be very, very hard for you to move that content forward. If you have bad sound design. It, well, if you have bad sound, if you, they've never thought about their sound design. They think the element of sound is there to make sure we hear the dialogue. And, you know, I'm teaching dialogue doesn't mean anything if you're shooting cinema because what we're trying to get to is something that is more visually based. So we can't, we don't even, a good film doesn't need nearly as much dialogue. I actually heard Guy Pierce talking about one of his arrangements on a set as an actor is to make sure that the director will give him a couple opportunities in certain scenes to take out the dialogue and do it visually. But, you know, unless you start pushing that on that idea, what people end up doing is they start mirroring what they have happen to, you know, see whether it's on the internet or whether it's like a mumblecore film, which I just, mumblecore is like the most dreary thing to me. I, I have seen people do so much better on the same budget because they understood 
how cinema actually functions, whether they were just having their actors dress with a certain kind of color or whatever. It doesn't take more money. It takes creative ingenuity. And that's the seminar series. The cool thing about um, showing people clips and talking about how film functions is this seminar series has also attracted this really cool group of um, weightier people. Kirsten Dunst comes, you know, so there's the stars out there. And then the greatest thing is a lot of people are now just coming because it's kind of fun. It's entertaining to watch a clip and sometimes we get into it. I'm not going to deny. I've thrown up clips from I know. Get ready. Just know. I've shown Renoir. I've shown Fellini. I've shown Paul Thomas Anderson. But every once in a while, I'll throw up a clip that just makes me throw up. And that would be something like Magic Mike from Soderbergh. (laughs) And those Soderbergh fans, they are still locked into the idea of how great Soderbergh used to be. I agree. He was great. But Magic Mike is a horrible piece of trash. <laughs> and I need to show you why it's not My functioning. My wife disagreed. Well. Did she? Well, <laughs> she I, loved it. Yeah, well. And so did her friends. Well. <laughs> Everybody goes uh, to okay. the cinema for different reasons, Thomas. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Even I couldn't get, well, never mind. We won't even go there. It's just terrible. But it's kind of fun to get into that, to show people how even a terrific filmmaker can find their way in another direction. And I love this kind of discourse. If I can get people believing in the creative end, you know what? Producers, publicists, distributors, they don't want to meet you. Mm. They don't care anything about you unless you have something that's great. So you've got to hone it in and make a great film. That's your goal. Not figure out how to mirror and match what's popular. That won't get you anywhere because that's what everybody's doing. Make sure to keep writing for the next one so that when you get to meet those guys. And keep writing for the next one so you have something. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, I have to admit that, you know, I'm I'm really loving the seminar series and, and working with independent clients on the idea of how to make a really, you know, magnificent motion picture instead of just, you know, where it's been for so long, which is kind of this voiceless cinema. I'm impressed that your education in this has brought you to get it to all the different facades. I've been over here trying to figure out how to craft this question. Let's say there's 10 steps, argumentatively, to make a movie. If the first one was coming up with an idea and two was writing the script and three was getting the money and four was pre-pro mm-hmm. on to, you know, the whole thing. Almost everybody that I know, and Lewis can talk about his experience in this, knows their part of the store. Like, I don't know anything about writing a script. I, I, I come in at the pre-pro process. I, I can shoot your movie, but I, then I don't know anything about the post-process. Mm-hmm. I don't know about anything about coloring. I don't know anything about uh, post-production sound or any of that. And I find that that's, that's true for most of, the, most of the people that I deal with. They know sort of their, you know, their niche, their part of the store. Now, some directors have to be involved with all 10 steps. or you know, there, there are very few people that seem to know all 10 steps. It's interesting. You're able to speak and teach all of those different pieces, you're better educated than most people in the industry at that level. Well, I mean, if, you, if you're if you forced because of your job to watch a lot of content and not just go, I like it. You know, I fired programmers that were like, yeah, I liked it because I don't care that you liked it. I want to know why you liked it. And, you know, I put myself through the ringer on that on any film that I actually see. And what's really fantastic is even with my, not all, but many, many, many of my independent clients, what I end up doing is I am there at project inception. 
before they know what they want to write. And then I spend time with them on a weekly basis reading pages. They may send me 10 pages, and we go over that, and we hone it, and we move on. So we go through the writing process. Then we go through pre-visualization. How are we directorially going to bring something to this that has a visual consistency that's actually appropriate for this subject matter and for these characters. Then we shoot. Then we go into posts. Then I do the exhibition plan. So I have this ahead of time, you're going to want this, this, and this for the film festival really sets them up for success. Yeah. Nine-tenths of the things that I do out here, you know, I have $100,000 to go shoot this mm -hmm. thing, but there's never any conversation about posts. There's never any conversation about what they're going to do after it. They're like, well, we can get it through the writing process and we can get this shot. And then what? And uh, so many projects get to the we've shot it process, and then we don't know how to, you know, we have to raise X amount of dollars more to get it done in post, and then to get it done properly in post to go on to uh, the film festival world. Yeah, no, that's super well said, because that's, that's, you know, it's my made-up job. I mean, you know, I, I mean, this is what I've always wanted to do. I, I have a fantastic client, Gabriella Tolman, who I, not only do I produce for her, but I develop all of her stuff. She's a Sundance filmmaker. And what's beautiful about, you know, our arrangement is we go through this whole thing together from beginning to end. And what she starts calling me is, one of two things, and I kind of love both of them, but I, I don't think I have enough guts to put them on business cards, but I am her creative therapist or I'm her creative guru. So it's, she has somebody to go to with all of her ideas, fears sometimes I have to deal with that. And what I found is that kind of collaboration, if you think back on the history of cinema, that's what's actually led to some of the greatest films. We were talking about how much we love Coppola and The Godfathers and Conversation and you know Apocalypse Now or whatever. Well, that is the arrangement that for the most part outside of some of the visuals, was there between Coppola and the great, great editor, sound designer, Walter Mersch. That's what they arranged together because Coppola believed in thinking about sound design. He believed in thinking about the editing. He believed in all of this was was part of cinematic making. See, we got to let go of the idea that cinema is story or we got to let go of the idea that cinema is screenplay. It's not. That's not fair to cinema. Cinema is involved with so much more from editing to music to movement to color to all of these things that you should address. And you can do this on a budget. You don't have to have a lot of money to figure out how to color orchestrate your film, your character, as he or she goes through a different kind of mood. You don't have to do that. You just have to be open to the idea that this is one of the things that you get to play with. And if I'm lurking over your shoulder going, okay, but what does this feel like in terms of color design on that level? You haven't talked about that. You've talked about lenses with me. You've talked about performance. You've talked about movement, mise-en-scene. You've talked about all this, but we haven't talked about color. So I'm that little haunting figure in the background that allows them to make a choice. And I don't think we have enough of that. I think between film schools, between bad selections at film festivals, I think filmmakers have come up with the idea that cinema is a transcript an audio-visual transcript of their script. It's not. Cinema is not story. Cinema is not performance. It's a lot more. If it was just that, it's theater. 
or if it's just story, it's literature. We're greater. That's my favorite thing about cinema. We have more expanse. I was killing the theater brat in me. <laughs> <laughs> Here's something we can speak to, mm -hmm. um, going back to what he was saying originally about uh, you know how you are able to provide instruction from many different departments. And I think that, that goes with the notion that you've watched so many bad films that you've been able to take away a lot more. Like, you're probably one of the few people in the world that can say, I'm really good at what I do because I've watched more bad films than, than you or you or you. You know, like, you, you, you know, for as much as there's to be said about naming the great films that we, we draw inspiration from, The Godfather, uh, Apocalypse Now, any of that, there's also to be something to be said for remembering why you don't want to do something that way. Absolutely. I mean, you know, remember, when you're a festival programmer, most of your time is watching failures. But see, I get kind of a kick out of watching a failure. This is my psychotic side talking now. I wonder now. you've been able to hold it down and how yeah. your brain didn't melt. I mean, I like to sit there and go, why isn't this working? What is wrong? And sometimes it's a casting. It's so amazing how you learn about casting and you learn about how face and, and body type signifies certain things immediately that no one can break. You know, I've been producing a new feature recently where I'm having some struggle with um, the choice of one of the supporting actors because I think he signifies too harshly what his character really is and he needs more, he needs to be a little more mysterious. You know, when when I was watching, I can't remember the name of it. It's another Soderbergh film. This is the Bash Soderbergh film, but it's the film with Jude Law and Catherine Zeta-Jones. And Catherine Zeta-Jones is the femme fatale in the film. And they've got all the wrong signification on her character. It destroys the film. She's the femme fatale, but she has pointy eyebrows. They pulled Catherine Zeta-Jones' hair back, so she looks completely repressed, completely, you know, just, she looks awful. Well, femme fatales... You know, that's one of the great things. They look beautiful. So they've got the wrong signification going on. And I think that when you watch certain films and you can pull out an element of that, you start realizing, oh, this is why the film isn't working. You know, and I enjoy that. And that was part of the film festival process. It was never really debating production value and all that stuff that filmmakers may think we care about because we don't. And it's never like even in editing, it's not worrying about continuity. You know, that's like one of my big, I mean, Walter Mersch, you you know, in the is, blink of an eye, author of an amazing editor. Yeah, I mean, Walter Mersch talks about how they teach you in film school that continuity is everything to the cut. Continuity is nothing to the cut in contemporary filmmaking. But if you go to USC or wherever you're going to film school, this is what they're going to teach you. And it doesn't matter as much anymore. It's just a change of consciousness in the way in which the, the art object relates to the spectator. We don't care anymore. It's been changed. So, you know, so, you know, as I look at films, sometimes I'm like, wow, if this film were cut more innovatively than the notorious comment I often give people who give me the opportunity to see a rough cut of their film, I'm like, why are you cutting so practically? Why yeah. are you not holding that shot? That's Why are you just doing master shot, shot, reverse shot? Why is your goal when you go into production that you go in to shoot a master and then break it down? Why are you doing that? If you can tell me why it needs to be done that way, well, Thomas, it's a diner scene and they're sitting on opposite sides of the table. And this is the only way we can really shoot it given the space. I'm cool with that. But if you go in on every sequence that you shoot with the same plan of how it's to be shot, you're asking 
for a negative response from a festival program. Yeah, that's one thing I've learned so, about you festival programmers is don't let any of you see any cut of anything you ever make before it's really ready. Yes, you, I mean, And you need to be ready to hear what you're, you know, it's like you, you need to be ready to take whatever the criticism is because it's probably like their job is to make sure that you that these little things that you may not even think of are at least addressed. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, if you want some tips, you know, for folks that are out there have got a new film and you're going to submit on the festival circuit, one of my favorite things to tell people is do not submit unless you're a pitcher lock. Do not imagine that if you send somebody a rough cut of your film, they're going to see how great it gets in three months because it's not going to happen. And you can only really submit to a festival one time. They'll That's take it. your money two to 20 times if you want to keep refining and paying the dough. But you're not going to get in. You because got one shot. Not fresh. It's not fresh anymore. It's not fresh. They, they know that if they saw it, chances are the South by Southwest programmers saw it and the Dallas International people and everybody saw the motion picture. So it's old by a time it returns a year later. So I, I always tell everybody it's very hard. It's very hard to stop. All I can do as a consultant is give the note. If the filmmaker can't hear it because their ambitions are so great, it's okay because that's part of learning. It, you know, And what'll happen is the film doesn't get in. I produced a film last year, a feature, that didn't get in Sundance. We cut it in six weeks. I told the filmmaker, let's wait. Let's just wait. We'll wait a year. I know, a year if the goal is Sundance. We'll wait. And the decision was made by a group of the other producers, no, we're hitting this because this is a good cut. You know, we didn't get in. Everybody started complaining. You know, they started saying bad things about Sundance and all this kind of stuff. And then eventually, let a little more time go, and it's like, we shouldn't have submitted. Um, the exceptions to submitting a picture lock, um, the, the only other exceptions that I would make is if you have a film that is dependent in particular on sound, you know, that where you really need a more fleshed out track than just temp track or production track. You know, if you need more of that, then you should hold back as well. Just think of it as your baby. Think of it as a child. You know, you're not going to strip your baby of clothes and go, okay, walk across the freeway all on your own on a winter's day. You might not, but. Um. <laughs> well, you're probably going to dress her up and put a little scarf on her and hold her hand and go across the street. If you think about your film in that same kind of way, you'll make better decisions for her. You know, so I'm, I'm going to really, I, I tell people that all the time. Most people don't listen. They can't hear it. Their ego, their mind is so bent on, they'll see the greatness. But we can't. I'm a festival programmer. We can't see it. I can tell you that I did um, the premiere of uh, David Gordon Green's first film, George Washington, which I'm oh, yeah. very, very proud of, of doing. It's on one of those guys' movies. It's uh, Undertow in Georgia. Like did you? Oh, that's great. years ago, yeah. Yeah, I mean, George Washington is one of my favorite film debuts, and the film was not played at Sundance. And the reason was it asks a lot out of the spectator. The cut wasn't quite where I got a chance to see a more refined cut, and the programmers, you know, passed on it. It wasn't their fault. They just passed because they couldn't see how much greater it was going to get. So, so even learning if you're that kind of an stuff. indie film icon like David Gordon Green, the same rules apply. When you're getting started, when you're getting started. What about for culturally relevant documentaries, things that are topical? Do you recommend the same, the same advice? 
Absolutely. It's, it always comes down to getting the picture up there visually. I mean, that's the first and foremost thing, you know? Yeah. I, I don't think it, I think even shorts, I, you know, being that the best film festivals in the world, they don't want a world premiere short. By the way, guys, you always know that the festival's a loser festival if they require world premiere status for a short film. You know they're mm. up to something not in your behalf because that's insanity. Most shorts that play at Sundance have been seen at between two and eight film festivals by the time they arrive at Sundance. Sometimes the attraction to getting a film, a, a short in a festival like Sundance would be a festival pedigree. You know, that it's played a lot of really interesting festivals but could still use some more exposure, and the Sundance programmers like it. Now, the rule for features is entirely different when it comes to the business festivals. They really do want that world premiere feature, and they deserve it. I mean, that's what Sundance exists for. It exists to help launch emerging, generally feature filmmakers in the eyes of the industry. So that card, your world premiere of your feature, you have to play a little bit more carefully. Man, the the fundamentals and the the ABCs that we learned to shoot on set, they're they're not as important as as we think they are. That's terrible news. Terrible. But it <laughs> makes it makes perfect sense though when you think about the the length of an entire project. You know, I'm myopic in my my part of the store as a production manager or AD. Um, there's so much that goes into it before I get on a project and so much that comes on afterwards. There must be some kind of special sauce in there, but it's it's all these little pieces. It's the sound design and it's the, it it's is. the and, color. And you're and just not, you're not seeing. It's casting, which I, I never is. gave any thought to. It's also until like the last few years how important casting is because we got involved in a process seeing any kind of international distribution how important casting was to them they only care about male stars being involved in blah 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 all these all these other things establish rules that kind of you know set us on all these little journeys um, I had never thought you know I had never given one second to you know thought to casting because it has nothing to do with what I do by the time I'm on you have a full cast and well, I take it from there it's also thinking about casting even when you're like writing your feature script and stuff one of the things that I encourage people to do is um, as, as this is me as a writer consultant now is the first thing you do is you you do not write what you know Okay, which is the exact opposite advice that writers are being told right now. That's write exactly what you right. know. <laughs> yeah, do not write what you know. And here's the reason why: because you don't know anything yet. You haven't lived a rich enough, full enough life to interpret deeply and interestingly what you know. So what you have to do is write what scares you. You have to write what haunts you, what follows you, what won't let you go. And explore those ideas because it'll come out not as a cliche. It'll come out as fresh out of you because you're in that innovative process. When you write what you know, um, my girlfriend left me and I'm sad. Well, I don't want to see that. Who would want to see that movie? That just sounds awful. But this leads down another ugly path where a lot of we're all told it has to be something unique. It has to be something nobody's ever seen before. It does. Not every movie can be it memento. Does. And if you Not have, every, you know, if you have the courage to take a look at yourself and say, "What is it that just haunts me every day? What is it that scares me? What is it that I can't shake?" Maybe it's just an image. Sometimes it's a feeling, and you start to invest in that. 
Sometimes it's a situation that you can't process why it happened to you. You're going down the road to making personal filmmaking and not a cliche, and that'll get you into festivals. The second thing I tell writers' clients is that when you write, you know, it's great to start casting in your head. Sometimes that helps to be able to hear the voice of the character. But on the other hand, and it's just a wonderful thing as well, don't write for you know, Sean Penn, don't write for these big actors because you're going to wait, if ever your film gets made, five to seven years for them to do anything because that's how far in advance many, many of them are booked. Write for a really fantastic actor who nobody writes for. And often, these days to me, that's women. We need to write, the the experience of the feminine in cinema is something that is the hotbed at Sundance because the stories feel fresh, because we've had a hundred years of stories about men. And if you're going to write about a male, if that compels you, then I have a writer client who just made, or sorry, he just finished a script based on, you know, he's a 60-year-old truck driver who meets a young Iraqi vet, and they take a journey together and they learn about each other. It's a road trip film. It's a strong one. But that protagonist is so unusual. Well, out of the clear blue, I'm not even, you just start thinking about you know, certain really famous actors out there who still want to lead in their 60s. Nobody's writing for them. I, I have um, a client at, at William Morris Endeavor. He's somebody that I'm working with on a feature right now. And a person like Richard Gere. Richard Gere does not take supporting roles. How do you know? Well, you go to IMDb. There it is. There aren't any. He wants leads. Now, how many people do you know in your world right now who are sitting on top of a film that has a 60-year-old protagonist? Not a lot. Mm. That's what Richard Gere wants. If you have that, you can make some traction in this industry. But if you're sitting around writing scripts for Zac Efron, which I hope you're not, but if that's what you're doing, (laughs) you're going to be waiting a long time to make that motion picture because he's just unavailable. He's very hot. He's very, very financeable. So, you know, you write for these other people who are excited about having a part. I mean, you know, this picture we're getting off the ground um, is, uh, you know, is a contemporary film noir. And the protagonists in it um, are a 50-year-old, very hot, but very, very dangerous woman and a young male that she meets who's in his 20s. And, you know, the response to this with actresses like Julianne Moore and, and whoever, Annette Bening, um, Diane Lane, you know, nobody's writing parts for them. They don't want to play wives and mothers. They're not interested in playing supporting roles. It's one of the great things I have to tell you is, is going to IMTB and looking at that person you dream of. You can learn so much about what kind of part they'll take. And I'm not talking about the character part. I'm talking about Will they work with a first-time director? If you go to their IMDb page and you can't find a first director in there, they're not interested in working with the first-time director. Or their man- if they're controlled by their management, they're not. So you can learn all the... And that's you know the Richard Gere stuff. I kind of knew that because there's like one supporting Richard Gere performance, which would be in a Robert Altman film, the one about the fashion industry, Ready to Wear. I think that was the one. Um, that's the only supporting role he ever had. The rest are all leads to this day. Now, if you look really carefully, you know, Richard Gere got some of his very best reviews for, oh, I forgot the name of the movie, um, for... First Night. 
what is it? First night. No, no, that goes way back. Um, For uh, Arbitrage, which came out two years ago, Richard Gere has not made a movie in two years. There's a reason why. Mm -hmm. It's not because he doesn't want to work. It's because he wants a lead. Jeff Bridges is the same way. You know, so so you don't have as much competition if you're willing to do that. But most people are doing what? They're writing what they know. So they're writing protagonists in their 20s, you know, and thereby there's not that actor base unless you want to utilize new talent, which is a wonderful thing too. So But now we know why he doesn't like Star Wars. There's only one woman in it. Um no, <laughs> and there's I, a second woman in the third film, and she's the leader of everything. We see her for one scene. <laughs> I will tell you that I don't like the Star Wars films, except for Empire Strikes Back. And I'll tell you why. Because there's no subtext. There's nothing that I can grab onto that makes me excited. Empire Strikes Back has that. The rest of it is spectacle. I have never been interested in spectacle. You would have to poke my eyes out to get me to watch Ben-Hur or Ten Commandments or any of those types of films. I'm not interested. Do I like the Lord of the Rings movies? Absolutely, because Lord of the Rings is dealing with something that is really, you know, culturally of the moment, which is, you know, trying to get along with people who don't see the world in the same way that we do. Will the dwarves work with the gnomes? Will they work with the fairies and all the rest of this stuff? It is exactly like this position that America's currently in. Are we going to, do we have to boss everybody around or are we going to work with the rest of the world? You know, so for me, that subtextual element is the richness of all cinema. And I struggle a little bit to find it in certain popular films. Not all. I'm not that kind of art snob. I mean, I, I, but I can tell you in 1977, when Star Wars is up against Annie Hall for Best Picture of the Year, they made the right choice. And I can rarely Grr. say that about the Academy. <laughs> 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 Didn't, uh, don't we have a... I'm going to fight you after this. <laughs> uh, Annie Hall, Woody Allen's first uh, first film? One of Woody Allen's first? Not his first, but it's it was his first. late fifth yeah. or sixth. Did your dad something. do Annie Hall? Uh, no, I think he was on a film after that. Mm. Yeah. Do you like any sci-fi? Yeah. That, yes, very let's much. Let's find a film we like I together. To, can I tell you? Tell, that let's do it. The most exciting genre, if I had to, if you put a gun to my head and said, you got to make a creative genre picture right now, there's two that I would focus on. One would be film noir, which I'm doing, and which I'm doing over and over because I know my film history. I know that after every great push on the horror film comes noir. It doesn't, the 30s, the 1930s when we had Frankenstein and and Dracula and the mummy and all that, that gave way to the great film noirs. When you speed it up and you go into the 60s and we have Rosemary's Baby and The Omen in the 70s and The Exorcist in the 70s, when we have those types of horror films, which are all terrific movies, then you inch into the realm of the fatal attractions and, you know, and the body heats and all that as we hit the 80s. Right. So I started realizing as a consultant, this is just right because we've just experienced, you know, five years ago, a complete devastation of our national economy. Right. And who did it? Bankers, real estate agents, all these people that are really pretty on the outside, but are completely devious and evil on the inside. So I started developing something that I think. Americans can now respond to because the monsters, Osama bin Laden, he's gone. 
you know, that, you know, I will tell you one thing because so you can laugh and maybe somebody out there, one of the listeners will actually do this. I had such a fascination developing a Bigfoot movie because I started realizing that Bigfoot was kind of living the same type of existence that Osama bin Laden was when he was hiding out. You know, nobody could catch him. He lives in caves. He's a big hairy thing. And I thought, ooh, why don't we do Bigfoot in a forest, you know, kind of like Jaws, you know, Bigfoot in a forest, Jaws um, of this era. Well, we didn't quite get that one off the ground. But the other <laughs> genre that I want to invest time and energy into, and I haven't found enough writers who want to do that, is what I call <laughs> what what I call um, uh, neo-realistic science fiction films. So these are films that, you know, are bending and twisting what science fiction can actually feel like. So it'd be films like Monsters, which I'm a huge fan of that movie, or um, uh, Melancholia from Lars von Trier, mm, which of Kirsten Dunst. Yeah, which mm. is which is a fantastic motion picture. Um, uh, it's a domestic melodrama science fiction film. So there's such ripe you know, District 9. There, it's just so ripe for innovation and political commentary. It's terribly exciting. And But see, I don't really say, I wouldn't say Star Wars is a science fiction film. I would say it's it, fantasy. It's fantasy. No, that's yeah. fine, that's fine. Because science fiction deals with technology and things like that, technology out of control, whereas fantasy deals with a little bit more of the spectacle and stuff. I could have argued with him about Kurosawa and all a bunch of things, but he said Empire kicked ass, so that's fine. We're gonna leave it at that. As a shout out awesome. to Mr. Kasdan, he did a great job on that. He's writing some of the new ones, so it's okay. But it's, I could have argued with him, but he's an expert. He would have really torn me apart, so it's okay. <laughs> so, in your research for um, all of this, did you watch any great black and white films like? Um, Dead men don't wear plaid. For the research for the noirs, I'm I I I love noir and I love noir because as much as I can speak about it as a genre, it's also so stylistic, you know, in terms of how it's cut, how it's photographed. I mean, the shadows and stuff, but also how it's cut. I also, you know, it's rich in subtext, so it has all the elements that I particularly respond to in cinema. And here's a really interesting thing about noir. You go back and you watch Double Indemnity. You go back and you watch Sunset Boulevard. I mean, these are films that are 60, 70 years old. They look fantastic today. And that's because the sentiment was pulled out of them. They're not very sentimental. You go back and you watch the more sentimental genres, you know, some of the dramas of the 40s and stuff. They don't look so good today, you know. So I would say that um, I'm always drawing on what I've seen. And I watch a lot, not just for independent festivals and things like that, but I watch a lot of content constantly. And, you know, going back to this notion of bad films, you know, I get some of my best ideas from bad movies, you know? So I would say on a regular basis, yeah, I'm, it's always there. And it's part of visual consulting that I do, right? Because if you want to help a DP and his director to understand a little bit more what they could do, you have to be able to say things like, have you ever seen The Double Life of Veronique and how color is used in that film? So you can start to understand how instead of talking about neurosis 
subtleties and strangeness, you know, in cinema, that it can be done, it doesn't have to be done on the dialogue level, it can be done in terms of color. And I'll say one last thing about this, because people just love this, it's so much fun. But if you go and you watch Alfred Hitchcock's color movies, the color green is always pulled from the palette. He's very careful about where he puts green. Green is a color that often signifies neuroses or confusion. If it's purple, someone's going to die. Yeah, and if you watch the great Hitchcock films, almost always the clue to who's really messed up in the film will be amplified by the color green whether Tippi Hedren's wearing her little suit in The Birds that's green, or Kim Novak just happens to be standing in green light with a green mirror in front of her with a green neon light behind her or whatever. He's very careful. He's, he's telling you something. He's giving you a little sign to watch out for this person. See, anybody can do that. You, anybody can do that. It doesn't cost you anything. You just need a little gel, you know, <laughs> in order to, and, and you need to understand how color functions in cinema. Now, so, uh, yeah. I want to make sure that you're 100% aware so that you didn't feel like I led you astray, that you did miss a joke that was in there. <gasps> oh, sorry. And that I joke, the joke was uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Have you seen that movie? Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. It's a, uh, it's a Steve Martin, a Steve Martin film. Yeah. yeah. Where they just took a whole bunch of yeah, black yeah. and white movies yeah. and kind of walked them no, through. No, I know the film. When I suggested yeah. that to you as a research movie, it wasn't actually a serious oh, question. Oh, I'm sorry. It was an attempt to kind of get us into a happy place. So that I we like could- that film. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. No worries, no worries. You know, we really appreciate the time that you've, had, you've taken out of your schedule to come down and chat with us, uh, share some tips, and uh, show these young folks, uh, you know, what they could do better. Talk to these guys about how they can uh, take on some new ideas and, and try something different. Well, thank you so much. It was really a joy to be here. It was my pleasure. Thanks for you, having me. Yeah, we me. hope you had a good time. And get a I did. Of- I did. I should learn to be and get all the jokes, though. But I get so wrapped <laughs> up in this passionately that sometimes I miss them. You're, you're passionate, like the rest of us uh, Greeks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. thank you so much. has been subdued by all the morphine and chloroform that I had to use to get him to relax after Thomas Ethan Harris said Star Wars is not a good film Star Wars is a great film stop it stop saying these nasty terrible things sir you're mean so join us next week for Cinematic Immunity we really appreciate you taking the time to listen don't stop no for Vendetta is an amazing film. <laughs> Catch you next week, everybody. We only agree on The Godfather. <laughs>